Hello, yes, how are we doing? Good to have you here on the Not The Top 20 podcast. This is the Monday pod sponsored by Betfair. And on today's episode, George Ellick and myself, Ali Maxwell, will be recapping the EFL playoff semi-final second legs. An amazing week we have had. The second legs had a bit of everything, really. Three lots of extra time, two penalty shootouts and one of the greatest playoff games of all time. And how about this, George? Not one of the six teams that went through won the first leg. Wow. A preview of the playoff finals will come midweek. But for now, we're talking about the six semi-final second legs. What a week it was. Uh, a week of playoff fever and hay fever. What the hell is this pollen count? <laughs> is, it, is, this a, is this a thing generally or is it just you? Because when you said that you had hay fever... Um, for the first time, I then did what all normal people do, and I typed "Hey Fever London" into Twitter to see if there were other people complaining, and there hadn't been a single mention that day. Wow! So, well, maybe people aren't specifying the area of the country in which they live where they're talking about suffering from hay fever. I don't. Well, I thought people would be like, "Whoa, has anybody else in London got this hay fever?" I don't think when I told you about it, I went. I'm getting a lot of London hay fever. <laughs> at the moment well no but I, I kind of thought if you tweeted about it you might be in that position where you're like trying to work out if other people have uh, have got it but I mean mate there's been so much in the air that on NTT20 squad over the weekend Tim who is an eye health expert uh, was recommending a certain form of, uh, of, of eye drops that are wow. apparently best in class so uh, if you here's a good plug for the squad if you if you're really suffering uh, and you want to know the best eye drops to use uh, join NTT20 squad using the link in the bio uh, you get a two-week free trial it's a good time to do it uh, let's get into the, the action George Tuesday night Kenilworth Road Luton 2 Sunderland nil uh, Luton winning 3-2 on aggregate and I listened to uh, a preview from Mike Holden uh, that morning and, and one of the things he said second legs in playoff semi-finals almost never look the same as the first legs so do not get too caught up on what happened in the first leg when predicting what might happen in the second leg. And I had that fresh in my mind heading to Kenilworth Road on Tuesday night. This was a good case in point, wasn't it? Last week, we sat and talked about the bravery of Sunderland against some serious adversity in terms of injuries. But on Tuesday night at a packed out Kenny, pure bravery wasn't quite enough. No, it wasn't. And, uh, you know, it was very hard, I think, to get the the second half of the stadium like out of your head when, when kind of looking at this game knowing full well that Luton have been a better side than Sunderland over the course of the whole season knowing that Luton have finished in third position and, and loads of points above Sunderland but it was hard to kind of forget just how much Sunderland managed to dominate that second half but as you said the, the, the second leg was just completely different um, it feels like a long time ago now I'm used to talking to you about games when you know we're, we're fresh off them a couple of days later but having seen you know five games come after this it does feel like a while back but Luton were incredibly effective as ever at what they do you know it was so important I think for them to get an early goal in this one to, to basically restore parity and make sure that they weren't chasing the game late because we know that with Sunderland's counter-attacking ability and tendencies, if Luton were having to commit men forward at 0-0, still being behind in the tie late on, I think they may have been picked off. But Osho getting an all-important first goal um, was massive and then for, for it to be followed up by Lockyer before half-time meant that Luton were fully in the driving seat. And there are, there isn't really a team I can think of who you want to be, you know, 
behind against with a lot to play for because Luton are just absolute masters at preventing you from creating too much. Uh, I thought they were brilliant on the day. Um, I thought they were by far the better side in, in that second leg, um, even though I thought over the two legs, I'd say, um, Elijah Adebayo doesn't quite look on it to me. He, I don't think he's coming into the playoffs in great form. Uh, but Carl Morris is just... I mean, what an incredible signing that was in the summer. Um, a player who elevated what was already an overachieving side last season, who um, just does everything in terms of, of linking up play, of, of being their main goal threat. Um, we know how important set pieces can be in the playoffs, and for them to score from two was massive. Uh, Alfie, Alfie Doughty's delivery, we know, is so impressive. Now, frustration for Sunderland, who, um, you know, I think... The key thing to mention for them in order to, to do it justice is that having just praised him um, and his, his performances over the season, in my mind, Carlton Morris probably should have been sent off um, for a pretty nasty late late lunge with, you know, whether or not there was intent, I'm, I'm not really willing to, to speculate on, but I think the tackle itself and the lateness of it and the, the, the way that his studs impacted the ankle meant that he was probably lucky not to see red. Um, yeah, he wasn't even showing a yellow card. The, the player was called back for a foul previously in Luton's favour. Um, but yeah, I think for, for Luton now going into this this playoff final as, as favourites um, against a side where I think stylistically it kind of suits them because a team in Coventry who are, are not reliant, but are a very good counter-attacking side, I don't think Luton have any issues shutting that down. Um, although I did, there was a good point made by a um, friend of the pod, um, Luton Town Analytics, the other day who I was chatting to about how in his mind the size of the pitch the Stadium of Light played a massive part in, it, in their struggles to maintain that intensity in, in the in the first leg and obviously Wembley famously a very big pitch so you wonder if that could have a, a say in the in the final but um, but a a mega performance a really impressive mental resilience I think to to come back and put in a performance of just a lot of belief and 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 you know, sure-footed performance off the back of what was a very awkward first leg. Certainly was. I felt like Luton pretty much had the game all their own way. Uh, on a team level, certainly it was it was one-sided. Uh, and finally, as I banged on about in the preview, the height advantage did take centre stage. Uh, Osho with the first goal sort of stabbing home. Lockyer, I think, had, had kind of got first contact on that one. And then Lockyer again uh, heading home that brilliant second phase delivery from, from Alfie Doughty. Sunderland couldn't cope. There were a ton of other set-piece opportunities for Luton, which sort of somehow didn't go in. One off the line in the second half and a, a few others. And in the second half, you know, when Sunderland were already one goal down and, and you kind of, you hoped for a, a period of pressure, it didn't really come. I'd say their opportunities were almost all like individual efforts. Uh, Patrick Roberts, most notably, uh, could have scored the goal of the century. Um, just like the most sort of <clears throat> basketball-style 1v1 dribble I think I've ever seen, where he just stood up about four players in a row and went past him and then dragged a shot wide from, from 20 yards. But Diallo had a, a few flashes. Uh, Clark had a few flashes, but only one shot on target, which was very comfortably saved uh, by Horvath. And, and of course, you know, Luton probably went closer in the second half as well. Jordan Clark early on, uh, at a bio off the line and, and then Cody Trammer at the end. I mean, what was that? I was right behind the goal that he was attacking. And I'll be honest, like, I, I, I was basically assuming that it was a goal. I was like, wow, 3-1 Luton, not bad. I love that's what went through your head. Wow, not bad. <laughs> uh, whether, whether he thought, whether he was in two minds about going to the corner and then sort of in the moment decided not to, but but 
didn't square it. It's very hard to to understand exactly what happened. But the shot was so poor, uh, dribbled wide, but only added to a, uh, an amazing atmosphere, uh, an entertaining game. I had an absolutely amazing night at the at the Kenny. Um, few few pints in the brick layers before, which I enjoyed very much. And then, oh my god, an incredible curry goat pre-game <laughs> from norms uh gen- genuinely life-changing like i couldn't believe what i was eating it was you are talking about it a lot it's absolutely sensational <laughs> uh, one note from, from a sunderland point of view sort of thing that sort of thing that you see live um, particularly when you're sitting very close to the pitch uh is that luco nine's like leadership of his teammates was absolutely unbelievable every single set piece it was O nine 9 who was you know barking orders offering support there were times where Equa in particular I'm afraid looked pretty overwhelmed with the situation and O nine 9 was, was putting the arm around his shoulder and geeing him up and saying look we need you Pierre we need you here uh, I was really really impressed with his performance as a centre-back but also uh, as a leader as well so um, kudos to Luke O nine. 9 uh, I, I think on this pod because we don't want to go into the playoff finals George we're going to go into more depth in a couple of days what we will do uh, outside of just talking about the games is ask what's next for the team that have been eliminated from the playoffs that will stay in the same division next season so uh, what next for Sunderland uh, in the in the 48 hours following the game there were some quite weird Twitter rumours about Mowbray leaving he he sort of seemed to to hint that he wasn't very happy with this feeling of uncertainty a um, couple of days since then and everything seems to have calmed down. But what sort of shape do you think Sunderland uh, head into the summer in and into next season? Yeah, it would be lunacy in my mind if Tony Mowbray were to leave the club um, by the club's choice. Um, the cynic in me suggests, you know, this is a manager who um, his stock is pretty high with the club off the back of an unlikely playoff tilt. You know, is this is this maybe angling just for a nice new contract, just to to um to, to ensure that he he can stay at the club for this foreseeable? And I do think the framework at, at Sunderland is obviously different to most clubs. I think that's probably the reason why Alex Neil decided to trade in Sunderland for Stoke was because he wanted more control. Um, so finding a manager who not only is happy to work within that framework but has done so successfully, I think is quite hard to find. Um, I'd be really really surprised if there was anything in those rumours at all about him moving on. Although the fact that there were kind of potential replacement managers listed in the story was quite weird and maybe suggests that there's more to it than that um next season i it's you know i'd be pretty confident that sunderland are going to continue their upward trajectory um i don't see any reason why they wouldn't be i think they have proven themselves to be um very very good at recruiting young players from academies within the country I think it's a, an area that is is fairly untapped I think a lot of clubs aren't really willing to um, take that risk and in, in Stuart Harvey their head of player recruitment they've got somebody who can quite clearly identify young talent who are first team ready both and, and you know they've done it from the continent as well which is pretty hard to do at the moment given the, the Brexit rules um, which they managed to, to manage basically better than any club in the EFL so from that Regards, I anticipate. I don't see any reason why this will be a, a flash in the pan. I think they're a club who, you know, especially given their size and, and what's the potential with them being a, a former Premier League mainstay. I, I right now think unless there's a mass exodus of players and, and Mowbray leaves and, and things change, I don't see why there wouldn't be a, a top six challenger next season. I guess there are players who will be um, attractive prospects for clubs in the Premier League. Um, Anthony Patterson is certainly one of those. There aren't many young, homegrown English goalkeepers who have played a lot of first-team minutes. I mean, he is an ideal second-choice keeper for a Premier League side now who you can develop, who you can give 
um, games to in cup competitions you can groom ready to succeed um, if, if they'll be able to keep hold of them I'm not sure I, I anticipate the way that Sunderland are run now unlike previously is that there will be a price for these players and if that price is met they will, they'll will be allowed to, to move on which is the correct way to run a football club um, Jack Clark's another one who you know has, has already earned himself a Premier League move off form that was way beneath what we've seen this season. Um, you know, he looks to me right now to be a Premier League footballer playing in the, in the Championship. Yes, he blows hot and cold. Yes, he goes missing. I never really understand why that is a criticism made of, of wide players. It is basically by definition what they're going to do. If you had a, a wide player who was able to put in the top level of Jack Clark's performances over the course of a whole season, his name would probably be, you know, he would be a, a, an elite top six player playing in the in the, um, in the in the Premier in the Championship. We've kind of seen it before, I guess, with the likes of Buendia, who are more consistent. But Clark is someone who who might be an attractive potential prospect. They're going to lose Diallo, of course, who I doubt will come back on loan to the Championship next season. Patrick Roberts is another one who, you know, given his um, clear talent, might be attractive to to those higher up the, the pyramid, Dan Neal possibly as well. So it's going to be interesting to see who's still there next season. It wouldn't surprise me at all if they try and cash in on one, you know, just recruit a big a big fee and look to reinvest that into what is a, a very good player ID um, department. I think Sunderland as a football club are, are in a great position now. I think over the last four or five seasons that the whole culture of the club has changed um, in terms of, of where they were before their relegation to League One. Um, the whole outlook is, is much better better now and um, you know that dates back uh, a few years so all credit to them and I don't see any reason why that won't continue. Yeah I'm equally positive I think that the the squad is in pretty good shape it might not necessarily feel like that right now because of the injury issues but there's no reason to assume that they will have the same injury issues to the extent that they had them in the last few months of the season. And I think, you know, if everyone's fit or if almost everyone is fit, they do have pretty good options uh, in most areas of the pitch. They'll have Ross Stewart coming back, we hope, in time for the start of next season. Uh, a lot of those defenders that missed uh, the playoffs will be back, Elise and Sirkin in particular, uh, and Ballard as well, of course. I mean, these are all young players who, who can and should, most of them, keep developing and, and take another leap next season. So... I'm positive about the players that they already have. I'm positive about, as you mentioned, their impressive player ID over the last two years or so, and the fact that they, you know, they're, they're confident and bullish in the transfer market. They're not, they're not trying to finesse it necessarily. That they are, they are front-footed in their approach, and I think that is actually a really uh, important part of this because it helps build confidence throughout the whole club. You know, rumours of them dropping seven figures with a lot of add-ons on Joe Bellingham from uh, Birmingham City that suggests to me that they are willing and able. To, to keep spending money and they want to do that by continuing down the same path. I'm excited for, for all of it, basically. And I'm, I'm really excited if Mowbray stays because I love the way his teams play football. I love the way he uh, talks with such enthusiasm about the development of young players. Uh, and of course, you know, he spoke to you uh, on an interview about five months ago and promotion wasn't necessarily in his mind. It didn't seem to be a huge part of his job remit. And that allowed him to be to be focusing on developing the players. And it was almost like taking that pressure off and being a little less uh, urgent about things and a little less concerned about, uh, you know, short termism actually probably helped them uh, with the run of form that allowed them to, to make the playoffs. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited for, for Sunderland's summer. I'm excited to see what shape they're in next season. Uh, Middlesbrough are the team that will join them in the championship next season. One of Coventry and Luton. 
will be in the Premier League. One of Rob Edwards and Mark Robbins, George, is going to be a Premier League manager next season. That's very exciting. Uh, Mark Robbins' commentary did the business at the Riverside. The only uh, lowest, the only lower-ranked team to win, the only team to win uh, away from home in the second leg and therefore uh, gain access to Wembley. 1-0 on aggregate, and it was that man, Gus Harmer, with the goal. What a goal as well. Um, <clears throat> no, Zach Steffen, I think, will be the... Um, the- the man that Borough point Borough fans point fingers at, um, you know, wasn't really able to came out, wasn't able to claim it. But I think the composure and the quality that that Harmer showed in order to not panic, get the ball out of his feet, and then whip it into the top right hand corner above the um, re- retreating Borough defenders was um, it was, was was incredibly impressive, and it, it kind of sums up the player that he is. You know, the more I watch him now, I, I think he's developed so much. There was always talent there when he first came in a couple of seasons ago. Um, obviously, always had that hot streak, but he's now he's now. Um, sorry, I'm just a bit distracted here because I'm watching Ali try and swat a fly with a notepad, which is quite fun. I'm trying to kill a fly. Yeah. Carry on. It's quite, it's quite distracting to try and give some really cutting football analysis whilst watching you try and kill a fly. Well, I think every now and again, it's worth being tested with situations like this to see how good you are uh, at the top top level of broadcasting. Yes. So Harmer is someone who. I think should be playing in Premier League football next season, whether it's for Coventry or or not. Um, he is just quality in every aspect of his play, and I think he's been the star of the two legs uh, in my mind for for Coventry. And I think the you know the biggest compliment we can pay Cov and Mark Robbins here is that they played a Middlesbrough side who you know obviously they they struggled to to kind of end the season as well as they they had done uh, been playing previously in the last few weeks, but have been really free scoring under Michael Carrick. And Borough were limited to very little over the two games. Borough only had one shot on target in this one nil um, home defeat, and in the and in the first leg had just two. So three three shots on target over two games against one of the most prolific teams in the league um, is is testament to what they are doing and what Mark Robbins has done at Coventry. Um, they never really felt under pressure, as I tweeted at the time. I thought. It was incredibly brave of Robbins. And I say that he doesn't really strike me as a manager who, who cares a great deal about praise or criticism either way. But when you're 1-0 up away from home against a team who are free-scoring and who have Chubrak Pom and Cameron Archer and Riley McGree and Marcus Force and the rest of it, and you're 1-0 up, 99% of managers would, would, would find a way, especially when you're so defensively resolute as Coventry are, would just sit on your lead. So to come and bring on Matty Godden and stick another man up front in order just to engage Borough higher up the pitch and try and find that second goal was a masterstroke. And, it, it, you know, this is a pop, proper, like, post-truth world where you and I, I know, would be sitting here if Borough had gone up the other end and scored and been like, why was Robbins doing that? Why did he go ahead and, and do that? But from, on the evidence we saw, like, Coventry continued to look like the more likely team to score even after the goal away from home. It was a really brave tactical quirk that you don't normally see that has ended up paying off. Um, and I think, in, you know, I know that a lot of neutrals probably would have liked it to be a Borough-Sunderland final because of, um, you know, the geographical um, proximity of the two clubs given their relative size. And I'm not going to preview it because I know we're doing that on Wednesday, but I, I do think there is a really, a real romance to this to this final. Now, we know that, Luton have come up from the National League to the Championship recently and that is an incredible story but I, I do think there's a, a generation of football fan of which we are just too old sadly who, who maybe don't quite realise what Coventry City are as a football club in terms of being a top flight mainstay for 
the majority of the last 50 or 60 years who fell on incredibly hard times who you know whose very existence looked like it was on the brink for a while down in league two you know this is a giant this is a, a club who are fully deserving of, of playing their part in the top flight and with a, a manager in mark robbins who i guess is almost kind of in similar style where robbins himself isn't a fashionable manager isn't necessarily a man who um many people would know about but he was a you know he was he came through at Manchester United he played in the Premier League for a long time he was a, a very very good player um you know I think the Premier League would be a better place with Coventry City back in it and I think that Mark Robbins is fully deserving of his opportunity to try and, and manage at the top level yeah you talk about the the substitution of Godden coming on I'd say it was the two key uh, selection decisions that he made that also uh, we can praise in this post-truth world um and that was Allen coming in for Godden uh, and Robbins putting a, a, an attack-minded midfielder, sure, in Allen, an energetic midfielder who does like to burst forward in for, for a striker uh, nominally or, or, you know, in a sense, a, a defensive move, but it made them better going forward. It was a great shout. It, out of possession, it made it even harder for Borough to build up in the way that they wanted. It made it even harder for Hackney and Mowat to find time on the ball and to, to circulate the ball. Um, but it also meant that when they did break, Godden and Jokeresh didn't get a lot of change out of McNair and Lenehan in those sort of individual battles in the first leg. So actually allowing Jok to be the, the lone front man and having runners from midfield, Allen and, and Harmer in particular, which probably caused more problems for the Borough defence. I don't mean the back, I don't mean Lenehan and, and uh, McNair. I mean really the midfield pivot, who I think found it very difficult to track those runs, was a great shout. Uh, including Ben Sheaf instead of Eccles was a brilliant shout. I was surprised they didn't start the first leg. I've I've always, in my own sort of personal rankings, had Sheaf as Coventry's best player, not named Gyok and, and Harmer and, and O'Hare when he's been fit. And I think the pass that 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 put Yock through for the goal uh, is is exactly evidence of of why I think that the understanding of spin and trajectory and the the different parts of your foot that you use to pass the ball to get you know different spins and trajectories I absolutely loved that it was perfect dropped over the top of the defence uh, it was. <clears throat> A ball that, that made Stefan think he could come out and get it, but the backspin on it uh, took it towards Gokaresh rather than um, Stefan. So absolutely brilliant um, decision-making from Robbins there from the uh, for the starting eleven as much as for the, the subs. And I think they just ground them down with their strong defensive capabilities. They were constantly repelling attacks. Um, basically from you know the first half an hour of the first leg where Burrow looked pretty bright from that point, they didn't. Um, they kept Borough under one XG in the game at the Riverside, as they did on final day. And the only other team to, to do that uh, since Carrick's been in charge was Millwall uh, in a 1-0 in a win for Borough. So uh, absolutely deserving of their spot at Wembley. Uh, and Gus Harmer, the, the star, I think he's been the best player in the league in the, in the business end of the season. So from April onwards, he has absolutely stepped up. I mean, his goal was amazing. How about that free kick off the bar, which was an incredible strike as well. Um, very, very exciting. I mean, what next for, for Borough, I guess, is, is where we go now, George. I, I feel confident that whoever doesn't win the playoff final, whether Coventry or Luton are in the championship next season, I'm confidently predicting that in the eyes of the bookmakers, Middlesbrough will be the favourites of the existing championship teams, if that makes sense. So outside of the three that come down from the Premier League, I expect Borough to be the, the most well-fancied to win promotion, to go again, if you like. Um, bit of work to do for, for Carrick with the squad, quite a lot of low knees that'll go back, but 
Um, no doubt they'll be a popular destination for talented loanees once again. Uh, what do you make of them heading into next season, into the summer? Yeah, I, I agree that there will be um, there'll be the perceived as being the strongest side staying in the league, regardless of what happens in the final. I think Michael Carrick has made a great start to his managerial career um, at Middlesbrough. I think they are in, in a pretty good spot in terms of of going into next season despite those players going back as you say I, I don't doubt that they will be able to recruit very well and have the, the financial means to do so um, I, I still am a little bit the, the only drawback in my mind about Carrick is is that it felt to me in the, in the kind of back end of the season maybe he tried to tighten up a little bit defensively and lost a bit of that attacking thrust from that and when they went on their incredibly good run of form um, they were consistently conceding chances and I'm, I'm not entirely sure how viable that is for a you know a blueprint for a promotion season next season necessarily I'm not definitely not sitting here saying I don't think they'll do it I just think that maybe and Carrick is fully entitled to learn on the job and I'm not taking anything away from the job that he has done um, but I do wonder if it's sustainable just to have this really gung-ho approach going forward I'm also interested to see what will happen with Tuber Akpom because I do Borough fans won't like me saying this either, but um, I kind of think when you have a 27-year-old striker who struggled for form and fitness for the most of his career, who goes and scores this incredible amount of goals in one season, it wouldn't be the worst idea in my mind to, to cash in while the while the price is high and reinvest that money. But um, yeah, there might be mutiny if they do. Yeah, they're pretty well stocked in, in many of the areas of the pitch. But as you say, certainly at the top end with Archer going back with question marks about Akpom. Ramsey, of course, will go back. Interesting summer ahead for Borough. Um, and let's move on to League One, where the aforementioned one of the greatest playoff games of all time, surely the best playoff comeback of all time. I ran through the four, was it? Four examples of a team having been four goals or more behind after the first leg of a playoff semi-final and no surprises that none of them had come back, turned it around and won the tie. Well, Sheffield Wednesday did exactly that. They beat Peterborough 5-1 after extra time, 4-0 uh, in regulation time, 5 all on aggregate and a 5-3 win on penalties for Wednesday. Absolute bedlam at Hillsborough, complete despair from those poor Peterborough United fans. George, it, it almost seems a, an impossible game to analyse, weirdly, but given that it's such an incredible game and, and one that has touched football the world over, really. Um, Pep Guardiola's been talking about it. Yesterday I saw uh, Sheffield against Peterborough, so 4-0, 4-0, and after extra time and penalties, I said it's a... I think it's to be playoff to go to the championship. Only can happen the environment that I saw. I imagine this. I can see that in in Spain. I can see that in Germany, in Italy. It's impossible. In our country, four zero, no chance. It's four four, and after four one, five one penalties. This is England. You know that's why it's unique. That's why it's so special, and that's why I'm long long time here. I love it. Difficult to analyse, but as Pep says, no doubt, George, one of the most amazing things to watch. Yeah, it was incredible. I wonder how many EFL fans like me had told their other half that 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 was the night where maybe they could watch something else and that we would have the the Sheffield Wednesday Peterborough game on, on the second screen only for about 20 minutes in to be like, sorry. Guilty as charged, Your Honour. Going to have to turn <laughs> succession off, I'm afraid. Going to have to turn off MasterChef. Going to have to get on the football. Um 
yeah, it was totally incredible. And and it was a really interesting development in terms of the way that the game descended into the kind of almost fast that it ended up being, where I thought personally Posh got it right in terms of they didn't immediately look to kind of come in and sit on their and on their four goal lead. Like they, they looked dangerous on the break. Mason Clark in particular looked like he might be able to to find a way to crowbar his way through the Sheffield Wednesday high line and expose them. The key thing here, though, was, was clearly how clinical Wednesday were able to be. And um, that they had two decent chances early on in the game and managed to take both of them. And in a kind of similar way, I guess, to Peterborough in the first leg. You know, Michael Smith put away the penalty early on, then Lee Gregory sticking away the goal after 25 minutes, and suddenly then the tie was the tie was alive. On the Sky commentary, I think it was Don who was doing the, the co-coms, Don Goodman, and he made the point, you know, just before half-time, he said, look, because of the way the game is set, because of the fact that Wednesday need to score two more goals, Peterborough are going to get chances here. Like They are going to get chances on the break. And I, and I totally agreed, agreed with him. But the way the second half developed, that wasn't the case at all. And I don't know if that was a decision by Darren Ferguson to say, hold on, we've still got a two-goal lead here. We need to basically put every man back. I mean, Johnson Clark-Harris may well, may well have not been on the pitch for that second half and that's no criticism of, of him it was just he was totally isolated standing you know trying to engage the, the Sheffield Wednesday centre-backs but we know that Wednesday don't really like keeping the ball around the back anyway so his his role was kind of negligent because he isn't fast enough to get him behind it and he balls over the top and Sheffield Wednesday looked you know throughout that second half like it was just wave after wave of attack and even though Peterborough very nearly got away with it you know and Norris himself um yeah, made some 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 important saves. Um, you know, had they not scored that fourth goal Wednesday through Liam Palmer, I think Peterborough would have been pretty fortunate to get through. I don't think that second half performance was deserving of a side really to to not concede two goals. But the drama itself was was absolutely unbelievable. Where um, you know we went into added time, there were six minutes added on. Uh, Wednesday needing one more goal and it came from a, from the second phase of a set piece I think massive credit has to go for Barry Bannon for you know I think most players knowing that you're a, a minute past the the minimum allocated amount of time um, would have just swung a, a foot at it especially knowing that Barry Bannon can do that but he had the composure to put his foot on the ball roll it to Marvin Johnson again I think Marvin Johnson deserves massive credit for the way that he um, rather than again swinging a foot at it took a touch looked up got the ball across to the far stick to Aidan Flint who was able to, to knock it down for, for Palmer to steer in unbelievable like massive incredible scenes and I felt like from there maybe Wednesday were going to go forward and go and win the game but no there was another twist <laughs> in the tale with a you know, I, I'm talking through this game because I'm used to having to do this, but everyone's already seen this. I'm, I'm I'm being a little contrary here, but I almost think that Peterborough scoring first in extra time was was maybe just mental and unexpected part of the whole thing. Like, you know, the, the the fact is that Sheffield Wednesday were about 16 to one to progress before the game. So, w- whatever you think about the probability of of it being turned around, that the bookmakers who really have to understand probability in order to to win as they tend to, um reckoned that there was a yeah, a 1 in 16 chance rather than 1 in 100 or 1 in 1000. Um but for me, the fact that we headed into extra time, the 4-0 goal had gone in in the 98th minute. And all received wisdom would have been, well, Wednesday are just going to do this now. Posh must be absolutely gone. But actually, extra time periods 
a bit like second legs don't always look much like what happened in the first 90 minutes. And yeah, it was quite a quiet first half of extra time. And it was Posh who went ahead from that set piece. They hadn't had a shot since I think the 47th minute. So first half added time until their shot in the last minute of the first half of extra time. So about an hour of football where Peter United had not had a shot and then they get a goal through a, a, an own goal. And you, you wondered if Wednesday would have it in them to, to go again, George. They did. They did. Patterson with with an and sort of was it an incredible finish? It was certainly impressive composure. Sort of stabbing it in with his left peg. It was a terrible first effort, and then he was lucky enough to get the the opportunity again, and then put in like a yeah a, again a composed finish into the corner. Well, not even into the corner, into the back of the net um, to send Wednesday fans wild and to get it back on a on a, on a level pegging. Um, and then we had we had penalties and. You know, for Wednesday, a team who all season have been incredibly impressive when, um, you know, when the pressure has been off, but have fallen at basically every hurdle when the pressure has been on. You had to wonder again, and it kind of it showed itself here with them go, you know, finally getting to get parity, conceding again, being behind, coming back and getting the goal. Suddenly, when the onus was was on them, would they be able to um, to go through and and get the penalties, put the penalties away they needed to get to get through, and they did, and they did so impressively as well. Um, Jack Hunt scoring the um, the final penalty with a you know, almost like it was like a Kieran Trippier penalty. Amazing. It was almost like a free kick, kind of curled it into the top right hand corner. He wandered over to take the pen, like chewing gum. I couldn't tell if he looked unbelievably calm or just like a bit spaced out. I wasn't sure if he looked really confident <laughs> or was just like desperately pretending that he wasn't there. He sort of yeah, incredible. And uh, I mean, I'm really happy for Darren Moore because. Um, you know, he's had to deal with a lot of sick this season. As we've discussed previously, I think it's probably not unlikely that had they, you know, the ridiculous thing about this is that if they'd lost the penalty shootout, would he still be their manager right now? I'm not convinced necessarily that he would be, but he's now leading them to Wembley as favourites um, to, to get up to the championship. And I, and I personally do think, and this is, and I'm a huge fan of this Barnsley side, so it's no um, criticism of them, but... If you get 96 points in a season and you come back from 4-0 down to win a playoff semi-final, there's not much more you can do um, to try and get your, your promotion. Uh, yeah, I'm going to run in Darren Moore's words to his team uh, after the game in the dressing room. And then Barry Bannon jumping uh, on off the back of it, which was just a lovely moment. And credit Sheffield Wednesday for the video. Fellas, listen. I'm absolutely just so proud of every single one of you. We had a bit of adversity in the first game and we knew we didn't, we didn't perform. <laughs> but listen lads, it just goes to show you what preparation does. We've prepared all week, the mindset, mentality and in training. And I'm going to say this year, the belief has been there from day yes. one. And I, and I can't uh, commend you all enough in terms of what you just produced out there. It's absolutely incredible. And you really deserve it. I'm absolutely delighted with what we've had to come through this season. But listen, boys, we've got one more. <coughs> we've got one more. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Enjoy tonight, but we've got one more. But I'm so proud. Yeah? Can I, so, can I say something from yeah. all of us towards you? You've, um, this last week, what you've done to change your mindsets, you, the staff, Tom Bates, has been unbelievable because I'm not going to lie, there was some people doing it. But what you've showed is and the what you've put in and done for us this week has been setting to none and we want to thank you and staff. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
So Wednesday, we'll head to Wembley. I cannot wait to be there for Wednesday against Barnsley in, in a South Yorkshire derby. Uh, quick one on Peterborough United, George. What's next for Posh? A difficult question to answer with full clarity because I don't feel like there is a huge amount of clarity at the club, uh, certainly off the field where it's been, in Dara McAnthony's own words in a video to the fans a couple of days ago, a very noisy season, too much noise, he said. He wants next season to be a lot quieter and a lot calmer and he, and he promised to make sure that that was the case. I mean, that's been uncertain and still is. The dugout is still a little uncertain. Darren Ferguson had a fantastic impact. Um, we'll take some criticism for, for the collapse, like managers always do. Um, initially only on a short-term deal until the end of this, but it seemed to me like there's appetite to keep him from McAntony and, and from Posh. So I guess it's kind of up to him. I, I personally don't see why he wouldn't take that job because I don't necessarily know what other prospects he, he would have in the top half of League One, let's say, uh, or above. Um, and the other sort of tidbit from that Dara McAntony video is, seems like they're going to go uber young. This has always been a, a, a club that signs and plays young talent, but seems like they're ramping up at ramping it up even more next season so I think we can expect a couple of players to be sold off I think we can expect a couple of very young players to be brought in uh, and yeah they're going to be a team to keep an eye on uh, George difficult one to, to pitch really posh right now yeah uh, I don't really know what to anticipate from them next season um, as you say I wouldn't be surprised if Ronnie Edwards is sold I wouldn't be surprised if Johnson Clark Harris is sold um, so that those are two pretty important players to have to replace um, they're very good at recruiting young players, so it wouldn't surprise me if they if they did it successfully. Um, interesting to note that uh, Grant McCann didn't seem to take um, the comments from Darren McAntony particularly well. We kind of called them out on social media, so maybe that's the end of the McCann-Ferguson-McCann-Ferguson dance, um, given uh, if, if relationships there have maybe broken down a bit. Um, but yeah, I, I normally with playoff sides, I think you can be fairly bullish that um, there'll be a, a maintenance of, of kind of a level of form next season. Right now with Posh, I mean, they're always a pretty good League One side, so we'll see. Um, but as McCanty alludes to, there's been a lot of talk about the club and it doesn't feel like they're in a particularly kind of secure moment. It feels like transition is afoot rather than um, kind of building to go again. Yeah, we actually saw Darren Moore on whatever night it was, Friday night at Oakwell. He was there to watch uh, whoever Wednesday will be playing in the final, as it is the home team, Barnsley. Um, we gave him a, a wave and a thumbs up as he walked in, uh, which was a nice moment to be able to to sort of uh, give him the, the praise that, that we wanted to give him. Um, and uh, yeah, he'll have had a close eye on this game and he'll be thinking a lot about Barnsley, George, their opponents who beat Bolton 1-0 on the night, two win, 2-1 on aggregate. Uh, the goal was scored by Liam Kitching. It was a lovely crossfield ball from Adam Phillips out to Luca Connell, who had drifted left from his, his general central position. And the, the technique on his cross, you know, deep, crosses from deep are so difficult because you, ha you have to have a certain amount of height on them to beat the first defenders. You have to have a certain amount of bend on them to keep the ball away from the goalkeeper rather than sailing straight into his arms. It's an unbelievably difficult skill. And the way that Connell just lifted it and curved it onto the head of Kitching was, well, it was the game's most important moment. It's 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 moment of highest quality, George, because as you alluded to at the top, this, this probably was the least entertaining, maybe, of all six games. Um, but absolutely no argument with, with the winners, really. One of the reasons I think it wasn't hugely entertaining is that in this game... And you could argue even in the first leg as well, Bolton just did not really 
turn up and, and sort of put their best foot forward. Yeah, I've said it a few times over the last few weeks where I feel like Bolton showed some great form throughout the season. But in the last, despite good good points tally, I feel like their performances have not been of a particularly high level for the last two or three months, if I'm honest. Um, they they don't really dominate any any part of a game apart from possession, struggle to create good chances, um, don't really have much in terms of, of individual flair in order to, to kind of play the way that they want to, I don't think. Like, it, it's fairly stale. Barnsley, on the other hand, were able to press Bolton into submission, really. Um, you know, there were a couple of chances early on in the game. And apart from that, Bolton, despite being behind, really struggled to create anything of note. Uh, got a little bit nervy towards the last four or five minutes of the game in, in injury time. But again, even then, didn't really create much um, to, to kind of... To, to, to make them feel like they could have come away from anything with it, anything in the game. Um, Barnsley, on the other hand, look incredibly well drilled, so well coached. I love the midfield. Um, you know, I think in terms of Herbie Kane playing, just well, Herbie Kane and Adam Phillips playing just in advance of Luke O'Connell. You've got three really technically gifted midfielders there with basically just physical presences all around them, which means that even though they're not particularly possession-heavy possession heavy side, when those guys get on the ball, they are um, able to to kind of to create, to dominate, to, to get Barnsley into dangerous areas, in, in advanced areas, whilst being brilliant from set pieces as well. And then Williams and Cadden providing the width with two physical strikers and Tedich and Cole with, with, with Norwood, who made a difference when he came on, um, and Watts on the bench too. It's just a really well-rounded, very good out-of-possession side who cre- consistently create good opportunities from open play and set pieces. A really awkward op- uh, opponent for, for Sheffield Wednesday as well. Um, and I... I've still got a sneaky feeling that the Barnsley might might go and be the you know that they're they're the one of the outsiders of the three with you know Luton, Sheffield Wednesday, and Stockport the three favourites. I think the League One is the, the one where I I would think that there's more, it's more of a coin toss than the others in my mind right now. Yeah, Barnsley comfortably won the the midfield battle in, in both games, um, and and the Bolton strikers just got absolutely no change whatsoever out of the Barnsley back three, who were also excellent. Uh, I did think Ricardo Santos had a, a phenomenal two games really, um, and he's always been a player who, because of how dominant he is when he's at his best, stands out so much in terms of League One centre backs. So we know that you know profiling centre backs is difficult because they're there are different profiles of of centre back, and you 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 don't have a you know a back a back line of purely physically dominant front footed centre backs. You need the balance. So Santos, his skills and his qualities are more likely to stand out than you know your your, your centre backs that rely a little bit more on mopping up or positioning or whatever you, whatever you want to call it. Um, but he is a remarkable defender when he's top form, and uh, I know that Bolton fans are pretty worried that he, he might move on because when he plays like that, it, it's not hard to think that he could play at a higher level. Um, they'll also be losing James Trafford. They'll be losing Connor Bradley, um, two of their star men from this season uh, as well. Uh, and I, I think it's because I didn't think they played that well in the playoffs and because of those two names that they'll be losing... I think it's it's tempting to, to keep following a, a sort of negative path and, and predict that it might be a difficult time for them. I think I'm a bit more bullish, actually, overall thinking about Bolton. I think they're in very good shape in terms of the, the structure off the field. Um, they have improved year on year for three seasons under Ian Everett, and I don't really see why they would fall off a cliff necessarily. Individually, I don't think they're as strong a squad as the others 
in the playoffs and certainly in the top two as well. Uh, so, so I think it's actually testament to Everett, the quality of his management and his style and his tactics, that they were just a, a consistent top six team this season, even if at the end of the season they didn't go into it um, in good enough shape to win promotion. You know, you can't argue that over the course of the season they were comfortably uh, deserving of their top six finish. So, uh, you know, they need a good summer for sure. But again, I think generally in the transfer market, they've been pretty pretty good over the last two months you could argue that uh, two months two years you could argue that the January additions didn't quite lift the level of the team as much as they would have liked but good teams aren't built in January so um, plenty to do this summer I think in order to maintain or even uh, elevate their position uh, but I think I overall I believe in ever and I believe in in where the club is at right now to to be back up there uh, next season in a league that will probably look quite different to, to what it looks this season uh, George in league two Stockport, two. Salford, one in the second leg. That was after extra time. That meant it was 2-2 on aggregate. Went to penalties and Stockport won 3-1 on penalties. Uh, this was a, a, a very, very tense and tight affair, George. There were plenty of times where I didn't think Stockport were going to do it. But in the end, they are heading to Wembley. Yeah, I think Salford can count themselves pretty unfortunate. <clears throat> of all of the teams who haven't qualified for the playoff final, I would say that Salford are probably the ones who, who perform the best over the two legs and were able to get past. And, and maybe, actually in my mind, probably perform better than their opposition over the two legs. Um, but they've only got themselves to blame. They missed good opportunities um, to make it 2-0 in the first leg and they missed good opportunities here before Stockport took the lead, especially in the first half, to, to, to double their lead. Um and Matt Smith was again a really good physical presence up front. He had an opportunity to to get them ahead and wasn't able to take it. And but as the clock kind of ticked on and Stockport were huffing and puffing a bit, but unable to really con- create consistent chances. And I, I don't think Stockport have looked quite as good as we you know we've seen them uh, perform previously within um, you know within the last few. Uh, well, over the course of the season, you know, starting with that Hartlepool game, and then the, t- the two legs here, um, it was a, a a brilliant ball from the left hand side, headed in by Oluwafe that that kind of kept them in the tie. But it, w- it wasn't. I mean, I don't know how you felt, but I didn't really think it was coming at the time. Um, but it, you know, in, in what is an incredibly low margin game, it, it kind of bought them time and got them back into the game and, and, and enabled them to take it to extra time. Where and even before then, Bolton had a great opportunity he had two massive opportunities in the game one at nil nil and one kind of going into into injury time late on where either of those are taken and Salford um, Bolton is a, a Salford player just so we're not getting confused about that I'm going back to League One um, that you know if he takes either of those they're, they're probably in in uh, going to get to Wembley um, and then in the in, in, in extra time it felt like they were going to be able to do that Stevie Mallon having a shot that took a, a wicked deflection off um, off Fraser Horsfall who you know, was obviously trying to head it away and wrong footed Hinchcliffe and, and kind of went into the middle of the goal um, which was frustrating for Hinchcliffe it was the, the bit of luck I guess that Salford had been lacking so far and from there it felt like they were, they were again were in the driving seat to go on and, and go win the game Can I just uh, interrupt it, you to tell you something mad that I do not pretend I knew until late last night I saw someone tweeting, maybe Pratt's or maybe one of the Sky commentators. The goalie's name is Hinch Liff. It's missing a crucial C. Whereas <laughs> every other Hinch <laughs> Hinch in the world is Hinch. Amazing. His name is Hinch Liff. And I did. I, I was ready to, to say Hinchcliffe a million times. But uh, yeah, Hinchliff. Like I just have. Yeah. <laughs> um, live in Hinchliff. Um <laughs> 
it was sorry was that a live and let die reference yeah live and hinch live <laughs> live <laughs> Uh, God, that's good. Okay. Live and Let Live, I think, reference rather than Live and Let Die, predates James Bond. Yeah, a scrappy goal then. Mate, took it to penalties through uh, Stretton. And I, I'm willing, and I don't know, again, if you agree with this, I think this is a really good assist for Anthony Sarsovic. Well, I think he deliberately hooks it. He sees um, Stretton at the far post, and in what is a, a goal a goal, goal mouth melee, a goal mouth scramble is able to kind of play like a five yard cross onto Stretton's head who then who then nods it in. Um, either way, Sarsovic ended up being the hero by scoring the all important penalty. Um, horrible for, for Salford's um, uh, penalty, uh, you know, the players that missed the penalty, Lund, um, Matty Lund firing at Mars over the bar with the first pen and then after that it was always an uphill struggle. So, yeah, Stockport, I would say, edging to Wembley rather than showing the kind of form that has me saying previously that they're the best team in League Two. I think Salford can feel mightily um, frustrated and disappointed and, and hard done by that they weren't able to progress. I think Salford are in a great spot, personally, for next season. I think Neil Wood has proven himself in his first season as a manager to be very tactically astute, a good motivator, a good judge of player. The key for me now is whether or not they can keep hold of, of certain key players. I know that Callum Hendry didn't play a big part in the playoffs, but he's one. I think Elliot Watt is another um, you know, this is going to be a test of the owners to see if they're able to to ward off. Um, you know, apart from Brandon, Brandon Thomas Asante, it hasn't really been a part of Salford's progression is losing key players, but they're certainly going to be tested this summer. Yeah, I, I hope that they are going to come into next season looking uh, like a better defensive team. Um, it is possible to win promotion by being the highest scorers and winning 3-1 all the time. Um, but, Probably, and if you look at the last few years of League Two in particular, and the trends of the teams that finish in the top three, which is what Salford have to be challenging for, it's more likely that those top three teams are among the strongest defensively than it is the teams that have scored the most goals. Even this season, you know, Salford and Mansfield scored the, the most goals. They finished seventh and eighth. Uh, the teams that conceded the fewest goals, they finished first, second, third and fourth. So, um I think they do need to sort that out. Whether that's a personnel thing, I'm not sure. I, I felt that Mariapa and Vassell actually did very, very well across the two legs, having kind of questioned them as the weak spot um, in the preview. So it'll uh, be interesting to see who the back line will be uh, and how much they can improve defensively uh, while keeping, hopefully, this this fantastic attacking um, style of play, which we've really enjoyed over the last few weeks. Uh, they will not be playing in the playoff final. Stockport will be, and they'll be taking on Carlisle United. George beat Bradford 3-1 after extra time on Saturday afternoon. 3-2, therefore, on aggregate, having lost the first leg 1-0. And um, I must admit, us having received a few tweets from uh, Carlisle fans after our preview, I, I listened back to it and I did wince a little bit because we're very negative about Carlisle. And even though I can still look at myself in the mirror and I stand by a lot of our concerns about their form and the shape that they headed into the playoffs in and the absences particularly of, of Mellish and of Feeney I didn't even know about that one before the playoffs and of various other players in their team I still winced a little bit because it was it was very negative and I if I had my time again I think we should have discussed what Carlisle under Simpson have looked like at their best this season because if a team does conjure their best in the playoffs then well maybe we should expect that teams generally bring their best selves in the playoffs we didn't mention what they looked like at their best. They showed us what they looked like at their best here. 
George, uh, this was a very, very impressive performance. Yeah, it was. I- I'm I'm not really willing to apologise for the negativity before the playoffs. I kind of stand by it. And I think it's a massive testament to Paul Simpson and his side that they were able to shed some really disappointing form coming into the playoffs and perform as they have done. Um, I still maintain that in my mind, Carlisle were the outsiders of the four going into the playoffs. Just because they've been able to improve their performance doesn't change that. Um, you know, we said similar things about Bolton and their form, you know, or I said about their performances coming in and that proves to be to be right. You know, that's the kind of football isn't linear. Um, and that's, again, not to take anything away from Carlisle, who I think will be incredibly difficult opponents for, for Stockport on, on final day if they are to play as they did do, as they did over the, over the two legs. I thought they were brilliant in the, in the last half an hour of Valley Parade. I thought they were absolutely excellent in this um second leg here where they were unlucky not to go ahead earlier hitting the woodwork I thought Moxon put in just a brilliant dominating display in central midfield um a player who even if they get promoted to league one I think is going to be very very sought after um in league one but we know amongst the biggest teams in league one and probably in the championship too because there aren't many players who possess his off the ball you know his off the ball um defensive capabilities his height is, is, is strength whilst also being one of the best creative passers in, in the EFL um, and he was magnificent I thought the Callum guy strike for the goal was brilliant um, you know I think the, for, for Harry Lewis the, the Bradford keeper there are probably a few issues in terms of the first goal he should have held on to it before the own goal um, I, I don't think you can really blame him for guys I think when you're shooting through that many bodies as a keeper you have to kind of delay your dive a little bit in case there's a deflection um, which didn't come although I do think Lewis for the actual um, the winning goal from Barkley in extra time. Again, he he kind of moves with the cross, and therefore Barkley's header's straight down the middle. But but Lewis himself has already committed. He's been an, an incredible keeper all season, maybe the best keeper in League Two. Um, but on the big day, I, I think Bradford fans may feel justified in wondering if their keeper could have done a little bit better in a couple of moments in the game. Um, but you know, it was a, another brilliant fixture between two sides who. Um, uh, you know, it's it's. We'll get on to Bradford in a second. I, I think again, for Bradford have been so reliant on Andy Cook for a long part of the season, as as by Bradford fans' own admission, and for for him not to not to get any goals or not really to 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 be able to make himself felt um, in the playoffs was damaging for them. Again, massive credit for to to Carlisle for for making that happen. And yeah, Carlisle looked to be back to the putting in the levels of performance that we saw previously in the season and if they turn up in the way that they did they're going to cause Stockport massive issues um, they've got a huge chance of, of going up even though I uh, I still think that they were the least likely before the, the first legs were played we just saw a glimpse of it didn't we towards the end of the first leg where they just started to turn it on maybe due to the seriousness of the situation basically they, they they got serious they started playing the way that they had done um, months before and they carried that on I think one of Simpson's selection decisions which was a big one really paid off and that was uh, selecting John Kaimani Gordon to play up front with Ghana uh, in the Omari Patrick spot Uh, as discussed in the preview those strikers have not scored very many goals uh, this season and as it as it was none of them scored in this game but that saying that is is ignoring the impact that Gordon had firstly early on in the game picking the ball up driving cutting inside shooting brilliantly off the post good save from Lewis and then he was the one that put Halliday under pressure uh, for the first goal it's basically his goal albeit I believe it went down as a Halliday OG that was a big call from Simpson Gordon is a young loney from Crystal Palace without a huge amount of senior experience 
And Simpson hasn't turned to him that much in the last few months. He had a couple of good um, goals and, and performances early on in his loan spell. But Simpson has only picked him to start three league games in the last three months. But he went with him here, Patrick not doing what Simpson wanted from him. And it was absolutely the right call. He, he was he was excellent um, playing off of Garner. And I think Garner's hold-up play in this game was excellent as well. So uh, that was big for Carlisle. Lots of set-piece threat as well. Um, they've been a threat from range all season, mainly through Guy, uh, who scored three from outside the box in the regular season. And another here, Moxon, of course, is, is a threat from range as well. He got his 16th assist of the league season with that cross for Ben Barkley who flicked in the winning goal uh, and Ben Barkley George winning it in the semi-final cannot play in the final because he's on loan from Stockport County absolutely uh, remarkable really and credit to him uh, in fact there was a very touching moment in the dressing room afterwards uh, here's what Paul Simpson was saying to his team in the dressing room I, I love when we get these insights into how managers speak to their players You've got to believe it, and by God you believed it. Because that's not just about football, that's about character, that's about belief, that's about being prepared to work hard, and you've done every single bit of that. Because I do not want to go to Wembley to make the numbers up. We're going to Wembley to try and win, and to get the achievement that you've worked your off all season to get, okay? So don't think it's job done. Enjoy it, we enjoy tonight, but then we recover tomorrow, then we train and it is total focus now because I'm sick of losing at Wembley and I want to win there okay so let's get it right why do anything different we're going to win the game so we do the normal things let's get our minds on it we've got Stockport so unfortunately you can't play Ben but you've just got us there that's Credit to Carlisle United's official Twitter page uh, for that video. Uh, and we'll see you at Wembley, Carlisle. Uh, Bradford, another season in League Two. So disappointed by them, mate. So, so disappointed by their performance um, in the second leg, even in the first leg. I spoke beforehand about whether or not Hughes would decide to put Clayton alongside Gilead and Smallwood in midfield in order to bolster them in that area of the pitch because Carlisle's midfield too or midfield three, if you include McCalmont, are so tricky to, to handle and, and so have so much quality. He did do that. It meant that it was just Cook and two wide players in the front three because none of those midfielders, Gilead, Clayton, Smallwood, none of them are comfortable anywhere near the final third. So you're, you're putting so much onus on your front three to make things happen. Naturally, there wasn't many bodies near Cook, which if you're going to treat him like a target man, which they do, I don't understand the plan there. Banks didn't get very close to him. Walker tried his best. He's, he's naturally a 10. He was tucking in off the left side, but they didn't link up particularly well. Maybe if you've got really, really attacking fullbacks who can who can impact the game in the final third, maybe you can do that. Just have a stodgy midfield three. But you can still attack with five with the fullbacks, but they don't have that either. Halliday slinging in crosses from deep without a huge amount of quality. Rydalsh the same on, on the other side. Cook was so isolated. I just felt a bit bad for him, really. Um, and I was just so underwhelmed and disappointed with the way that they played. Banks obviously had the one moment of real quality, um, getting to the byline, um, getting uh, cutting it back for Derbyshire to sweep home. Banks was then immediately subbed off for a centre-back in Matthew Platt, uh, and there was nothing that they offered after that. Just really peculiar, George, I felt, from Bradford on the day, across the tie overall, really. Uh, disappointing, frankly. Um all season, I, I kind of, and we, you know, we mentioned it so often, it felt like they were a football team that, although they were a solid top seven, top eight team, 
they didn't seem like they were more than the sum of their parts, if that makes sense. They, they didn't feel like a great team. They felt like a team that had a great individual at the top end of the pitch and one in goal in Lewis. But a good keeper and a good striker, that's not enough to, to get you where you want to be in modern football. No, it's not. I mean, and you look at the, the recruitment profile of some of the players that Mark Hughes has brought in, and, I, and I'm not for a second saying that this is the only profile of players he's bringing in because I know it's not, but, you know, we've seen... Adam Clayton and Matt Derbyshire, age 34 and 37. Um, and I think adding, and I know that Clayton in particular has been a, a pretty good signing for for Bradford. But I do worry long term if this is going to be continuous because I think adding some experience, some old, you know, some, some wily old heads into a, a fairly young squad can be a good thing. But if you continue down that road, I think quite quickly you're going to um, end up having um, just a lack of, of the physical... Um, the youthful physical attributes that you need in order to be a, a functioning football team, especially when you add Richie Smallwood in there, who's who's 32 as well, Andy Cook, who's no spring chicken. Like They need to bring in, I think, a, a bit of youth. I, I find them an incredibly hard team to, to kind of grasp this season where um, beyond Cook's individual magnificence, it's, it's hard to really make a case for them being a particularly functional football team, which is ridiculous to say about a team who, who two games to go to the end of the season had a chance of, of finishing in the top three. And maybe that is a sign that actually, you know, if, we've been saying this for a long time, but if Hughes can get this team to click, then there's no reason why they shouldn't be you know, a team who can win the league. Because if this is five out of ten, then what does eight, nine out of ten look like? Um, I'll be intrigued to see what they do over the summer. I think it's also understandable that Mark Hughes, you know, it needs a bit of time to get to grips with this league. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Mark Hughes knew very little about League Two footballers before taking the job. He's obviously a, a very, very good coach. And I think often his coaching capabilities and managerial capabilities are overlooked. Um, where prior to, you know, he, he got that Man City job on merit, having done an, an unbelievable job at Blackburn and, and at Wales. Um, you know, maybe as he gets more to grips with this, as he begins to kind of build his own dossier on the, on the league after being out there for a season and a bit, maybe we'll see that coaching capabilities come to the fore. So I, I wouldn't say I'm overly positive about them going forward, but I see no reason why they won't be in a, a top seven team again next season. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, as you can tell, feeling pretty down on them at the moment, but I don't want to overreact. And you alluded to it there. It's their best season for a long time. It's their best team they've had for a long time in terms of their finishing position. Um, and so I, I hope that the fans will look back positively overall. Um, and yeah, I will wait and see how the summer goes and, and we'll see we'll see how uh, how things settle and how we feel about them uh, pre-season. We almost always have them in the top three. So that's in our 1-24. to So let's see if that's the case again. Um, Carlisle head to Wembley. They'll play Stockport. Uh, Sheffield Wednesday will take on Barnsley. Luton will play Coventry. Just three games to go in this amazing EFL season. Thank you for being with us all the way from July until here we are coming towards the end of May. Please do join us for a playoff final preview in a couple of days on this feed subscribe to it get it fresh uh, and then the review of the playoff finals early next week as well a massive thank you to Betfair for joining us on this journey as well uh, thanks to everyone on NTT20 squad for their support uh, too you can join the squad using the link in the description of the podcast and join up uh, for free for a two week trial just to check it out and see what the vibe is uh, we'll be back again in a couple of days go well go well